back in the fur shed for episode 35 of the Trapping Today podcast. I am Jeremiah Wood from trappingtoday.com and thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate having you guys here. It is another beautiful day in northern Maine in midsummer and man, uh, it's just been awesome weather we've been having recently and it's a great opportunity to get out and get a lot of things done. I haven't done a lot in the trapping part of uh, of life recently, uh, but been doing a little bit here in the fur shed, tinkering around and putting things together, uh, pouring off the beaver tail oil that as it uh, gets made in this hot sunny weather, and stockpiling that away, and uh, been thinking about different formulations for new lures to try out on the trap line this fall. Uh, almost got my sawmill ready to go and mill up some pine logs and build those boxes for martin trapping too so lots uh lots of things yet to do but in tonight's episode we are going to talk about fastening traps so we'll go through stakes and drags and i thought it'd be a good opportunity to go over uh sort of the the history as i know it um a really brief overview of the what we've what has been done in the past and how things have evolved over time and the different options that you have as far as trap fastening. But first, I wanted to uh, just mention a quick uh, uh, email I got from a listener this week of the podcast, Ryan. Uh, I am going to respond to you very soon. Apologize for not getting back to you right away. Haven't been inside hardly at all this week, but that's usually a good thing. So anyway, uh, the question was about the fur market and talking about how fur prices have been really low and what is it that you know is there a possibility to do anything to try and improve the market or create new markets and and try to um, look for you know what other products uh, is there any business opportunities to improve the market are there other things that can be made from fur other than uh, just fur coats and hats? And um, is there a possibility to market more fur in the United States? So those are all very good, interesting questions. And it's another opportunity to let you in on uh, my book, Fur Profit, that I published this winter. It's A Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market. And this is a great place to get started. It's not going to give you every answer to those questions by any means, but it's a good overview of the fur market so you get a better understanding of where things are at and a little bit of background and uh, the different aspects, the marketing channels, where fur is sold, how it's sold, what types of fur uh, make up the majority of what, what's out there, and, and on and on. So that's a good starting point to get a little background. You can pick the book up. Any of your good trapping supply dealers will have it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on my website, trappingtoday.com. It's a $12 paperback book, or you can buy an ebook on Trapping Today for, for 5 bucks. So check that out if you haven't already. Uh, but going beyond the basic information for the book, it's... You know, one of the things I talked about in the book was a business opportunity that I pursued when I was out west. And I wanted to make, uh, I, I was getting into fly tying, and I noticed that a lot of people used fur patches for fly tying. And I thought, you know, this is going to be a great opportunity to maybe, 
you know, create a new market for furs and fur prices were low and I thought it would be just awesome. So I put everything together and I go over this in the book, but I made up a plan. I bought a bunch of inventory, packaged things up, just went and started shopping it around. And what I realized was the, while the stuff was already being used in the market, the demand for the products that I was looking to sell was just was not nearly large enough to satisfy, uh, to, to make it a viable business. And that was just a very tiny little niche business within a small industry uh, using, uh, you know, damaged uh, tanned fur pelts and cutting them up and, and selling patches for fly tying. There are a thousand other possible niches that you can explore as well, but the the thing, the really the overall, I guess what we're looking at is we have. I just did a a little bit of research on on the trapper numbers, and we've got approximately 175,000 trappers in the United States, and some of those trappers don't do much and don't catch much fur. Uh, some of those trappers are putting up hundreds and hundreds of fur pelts. Add to that all of the ranch fur that's on the market, and there is so much product out there that it's very difficult to find a way to uh, to to sell enough or create enough demand for that product in order to bring fur prices back up. And this is assuming, of course, that uh, foreign demand is low, which it is right now. Um, the lack of good markets in Russia and China is what's keeping fur prices low at the moment. But those are good ideas and good things to think about. You know, what other things can we make from fur and can we increase the market? So I don't know what they are. Um, about 50 years ago, a lot of people in the U.S. wore fur coats. That was part of the fashion. That was style. And some of that decline can be attributed to the animal rights movement. But a lot of it also is just that fur coats really aren't in style anymore. I don't know how else to put it. You know, there's there's a bit of a fashion trend for uh, liners, like uh, fur trim lining around the hood of a jacket, like those Canada Goose jackets. Those are really popular. But you can... It doesn't take very many coyotes to uh, to fill up a store full of fur-trimmed jackets. So there has to be a greater demand uh, in order to uh, to create these marketing possibilities for fur and and bring prices up and continue to have a thriving fur industry. And I don't have any of the answers. I don't know anybody who does. I. I hope that we can find ways to create uh, a better environment for fur and you know especially for from my perspective for wild fur because wild fur is a, a niche market is is a very small percentage of the overall fur that's being used in in the world so if we could find ways to to market that more effectively that would be awesome and I initially a while back I thought you know this is just a trend and it, things aren't looking very good and we're going to be you know fewer and fewer people nobody wants to wear fur nobody everybody thinks it's you know 
that a lot of people just don't have a connection to the outdoors, don't understand what trapping is. But then one of the things that happened, and I'll do, I'm going to do this uh, topic on a podcast episode in the future, but all of a sudden we started seeing a bunch of trapping shows on reality TV or outdoor survival shows that included a lot of trapping. And they started popping up three, four years ago, four or five years ago. And initially, I thought that there is no way that these shows are going to be popular. Um, It shows people trapping and killing animals, and the animal rights people are going to be right right all over this, and and people just aren't going to want to watch it. Well, to my pleasant surprise, those shows have been incredibly popular. And a lot of people seem to think it's really cool what we do as trappers out, out in the woods. So the same way that I was surprised by that, maybe there's some surprising things that we can do in, in this fur market or somebody can do to create a new marketing opportunity. Uh, just a small example of this is a few weeks back I, I read this article on a group up in the Yukon up in Canada called Fur Real, F-U-R Real, and it's a, a startup company that is kind of working to promote fur that's produced by trappers in the Yukon. So they were in the news because they got this $60,000 innovation grant uh, f- from the government of Canada to work on promoting wild fur in this area. I don't know what they are going to be able to do as far as you know making leaps and bounds in the fur industry or, or making big changes but maybe it's a start I don't know maybe it'll just fizzle out but maybe we're we're this is the beginning and other people will this will be successful and other people will see that and and try to create similar things but anyway they're they, what they've been working on this fur reel you can find more at I'm fur reel Dot com. That's I-M-F-U-R-R-E-A-L dot com. And basically just says, Yukon Fur Reel is a bi-local movement supported by the Yukon Trappers Association and North Yukon Renewable Resources Council. Its main event is Unfurled, a fur celebration and marketplace held in Whitehorse, Yukon, in March 2018. The vision, I'm Fur Reel, is the shared feeling of locals who are aware of and support Yukon's wild fur industry and fur products. It celebrates our small local industry that sustains trappers on the land and makers with their craft. Mandate is to share stories of Yukon trappers and crafters in our communities, celebrate the rich history and sustainable future of Yukon's fur industry, increase awareness of current approaches to trapping and the rules that govern this activity in Yukon, show why our small local industry provides an ethical and sustainable choice when it comes to purchasing fur products. So that sounds like a pretty cool vision. It's just local to to Yukon, but you know maybe it'll be successful. It looks like just looking at back through the events, they have that unfurled event. They also have a fur ball. Um, they had this back in March. They they were selling tickets and they had this event where they taught people how to make mittens, how to make Yukon mittens. They did a Trappers, Yukon Trappers Fur Showdown, I guess where people were able to show their fur and sell it. Uh, they did this 
Wildlives, Portraits and Stories, and Exhibition from Yukon Traplines. They did a film screening and some a few other different exhibitions and making your own fur accessories, uh, making fur pom-poms, different events to show people how to make make different fur items. So Ryan, I know that doesn't answer your question and I don't think there is an answer to your question, but hopefully it starts you in the right direction. It would be awesome if you could uh, try and, and uh, discover a few ways to help promote the fur market fur industry. That'd be just a great thing. So I'm going to take a quick little break here and then we're going to talk about trap fastening. Fastening traps. It's a pretty critical part of trapping as you can imagine. Uh, it's something that I am always extra careful about. One of my biggest fears is having an animal uh, run away with a trap on his foot and not, not um, be able to be recovered. So just a quick little story. When I was out west and I, I had a friend who was a local game warden and he got a call one time and asked me if I wanted to join him and help him out and the call was a bobcat a few miles down the road was under somebody's porch and it had a trap on his foot so we went over there and uh, we were crawling there crawling under the porch and I can't remember exactly how we did it but I think I think he got a catch pole around the bobcat's neck and I grabbed the the trap and uh, and pulled it off and he released the pole and the thing took off for the woods, uh, no worse for the wear, so it worked out pretty good. But uh, it would have been a rough deal if if the cat hadn't uh, hadn't gone into a place where we could catch it. So we read the tag and we knew who the trapper was. And it was uh, it was a very young trapper who was in his first or second year of trapping, and it was pretty obvious the trap was not fastened properly. There was, I believe, it was a single strand of 14 gauge wire and a little bit of rusty wire at that and the wire the cat got caught tugged on that a few times and broke the wire and was off so very very bad thing uh, to have happen not only is it a bad thing for trappers it's uh, it, it's not an ethical thing if you're not properly fastening that trap it's not fair to the animal and it's also not good for image trappers in the trapping community and to uh, to boot, that was a $500 bobcat, approximately, when uh, the time that in the market and uh, the way the market was going and where that cat came from and the quality of that pelt, that was probably at least a $500 cat if he handled it properly. So that's that's a bad scenario. You don't want to see that happen. Um, just fastening traps is absolutely critical. So. What did people? What do people do? What did people do? Don't put a single strand of 14 gauge wire on a bobcat or coyote trap for one thing. But you know, let's let's think about the different options there are for fastening traps. We have gone, uh, we have come leaps and bounds in recent years on all of the different options we have. It, it's pretty amazing, actually, the possibilities for fastening traps. But very basic, basic level, way back in the day, the old-timer fur trappers, they had, for the most part, what what they would do is they would make a set and they would chain the, the trap to uh, either a really large log or a tree. 
and that was the way that trap was fastened. And the log was either, uh, sometimes it would be be a huge log that was nearby, sometimes it would be something a little smaller, but they'd drag it over from, they'd go cut it and cut a tree down or something and, and drag that over uh, to the set. Uh, moving along further in, in the trapping history, uh, as things progressed, uh, there was, you know, start trappers started to use wire and a lot of times trappers would would wire uh, either wire to a tree or they they would they'd make these these clogs or or drags out of these long chunks of wood and they would fasten uh, wire or chain the trap to the center of that piece of wood so when the animal got caught and they'd start taking off that uh, that force would be would pull uh, from the middle of that log and it would be very likely to get caught up uh, or it would drag it would have a lot of resistance it would catch brush and other trees and dirt and it would not allow the animal to go very far that was the original drag um, as as we got into more of the modern trapping era some of the first stakes were developed and the first stakes were wooden wooden stakes so this is something that was very popular even into the uh, 1970s. In fact, if you read some of the fox trapping books from the fur boom of the of the 70s, you will see there's there's a lot of uh, books and and method writers that recommend using wooden stakes for fox trapping. And basically, the stake was just something that was uh, tapered like a very long narrow triangle. And the top part would would be just large enough to not allow the loop at the end of the chain to go through. And so you basically just pound that wooden triangle stake uh, that was sharpened on one end. You pound that into the ground uh, through the the chain loop, and that would hold your fox. That was staking for a very long time. Now, what happened to change that? Well, probably the biggest thing was Mr. Coyote moved east. And there's only so many times you get a wooden stake pulled out of the ground by Mr. Coyote uh, before you learn that uh, maybe I shouldn't be, be using those wooden stakes. So that's when uh, we started to have uh, steel and metal come into play for staking. Uh, and at the same time, metal started to be used uh, in the drag world as well. Um, and, and so we'll start to kind of transition here into the more more of the modern world of what we use for stakes and drags. Uh, but first I will mention that sometimes uh, there are some cases where wire or chain to a solid object is still the way uh, to to fasten a trap. One example that I can think of off the top of my head is the trappers up in Alaska that are trapping, say, trapping for wolves or trapping for lynx and uh, or wolverine, and the ground is frozen and covered in snow, you're not going to get anything pounded into the ground. Uh, they are often in areas where there's not a lot of thick timber to get caught up in with a drag. So a lot of times, and, and they're also dealing with animals that, for the most part, in those situations, are not really shy of a chain or a wire uh, n nearby next to the trap set. 
So in those cases, a lot of times you'll see those guys, uh, they'll, they'll anchor right to a tree or, or a big log or a dead down tree or something similar to that. But uh, uh, for the most part, we're, we're talking in, in the modern era. Uh, oh, one other thing I should mention is uh, conibear body grip traps. So when we're dealing with killer traps that are designed to dispatch the animal almost immediately, the requirements for stakes and drags uh, differ. Usually, uh, body grip is going to be set in the water or up in, uh, in a tree. Sometimes they're set on the ground. If they're set on the ground, they're usually in, in boxes or in the entrance of boxes. And so they are wired to those objects, either a box or a tree, or if they're in a water set, they're wired to typically a stake that is driven into the mud. And because of those circumstances and the type of trap, the, the animal's not going to be able to pull on that body grip trap for any length of time and with any force. They're basically uh, disabled when that trap snaps off on them. So it's a quick, clean kill, and you're not going to have the need for a super rigid staking option in most cases. And that's, you really need to use your best judgment on that. And I always try to over stake and, and over fasten, make sure that in the worst case scenario, the animal, the trap is not going to leave the site. But other than those situations, we're looking at stakes and drags. And let's just talk quickly about the evolution of stakes. Again, starting with that wooden stake, we moved to metal rod. And some of the earlier ones were smooth rod. And usually that smooth rod on the end of it would have a triangle-shaped piece of steel that is welded to the end of the rod on one end, uh, on, on the sharp end that goes into the ground. And then on the other end, you'd have a nut or a washer welded to that end to be able to pound down and have that uh, loop over the top of your chain or your chain loop to, uh, to hold it into the ground. So the smooth rod was pretty commonly used. Actually, one year I was trapping for coons in the water in ditches around Utah, and I found the, the highway department had uh, replaced a whole bunch of guardrails, and there's these metal pins, these big, long metal pins that I don't know what they, they must have been, oh, 14 inches long or something like that. And I actually I didn't have much money or much trapping supplies, and and uh, they they left a bunch of them there to rust after they replaced the them with new ones. And I went and picked up a bunch of them off the side of the road, and and I used them for coon trapping and worked pretty slick. So so that sometimes you can improvise a little bit too. But uh, for the metal the metal stakes uh, with that triangle end, those odd times that started to transition over time. And we started to see more use of rebar. And for a very long time, the, the rebar stake was the way to go. That was when I started trapping, that's what we used. And I still have a bunch of them. I still do use them. Uh, the, the rebar stake was pretty much at the time it was like uh, revolutionary. Because it was rebar is relatively easy to find, not that expensive. Uh, you can cut it cut a bunch of cut it into a bunch of pieces by long lengths and cut it up sharpen one end 
and the other end you weld something to it and you're good to go you pound that into the ground and it has those ridges that help hold it in against the dirt to keep that from being able to be pumped out by the animal and not only that the way those ridges are kind of spiraling down the piece of rebar you can actually attach uh, a pair of ice grips and twist and twist and twist and you're able to get that out of the ground uh, relatively easy. So rebar was a pretty cool way to go. Uh, a few things that I learned that work pretty well when we we're using rebar stakes is uh, obviously sharpen one end. You can do that with, uh, you can, you could cut a point on it with a torch or something. What we used was usually a chop saw. Uh, and and put that at an angle like a 45 degree angle and so you could do two ends at once with one cut make multiple lengths so I had short lengths for really rocky ground that was tough to drive a stake in and then really long lengths for sandy soil that you needed a really long rebar stakes in and then some in between I had three different sizes of rebar stakes the other thing that I learned pretty quick and my trapping mentor helped me out with a lot was uh, instead of, so when you weld, a lot of people weld a washer to the very top of, of the stake and they, that's the point at which that you're pounding in the stake to get it into the ground. Well, he taught me to move that washer down approximately a half inch from the top of the stake because if you got that weld right at the top of the stake and you're pounding the living daylights out of that stake to get it into the ground, uh, after a certain number of hits, that weld is likely to break and then you have a malfunctioning stake. So it's very easy just to set that down half an inch. You're just pounding on the rebar rod and you're not messing with that washer or the weld. The other thing we did, maybe overkill, but we welded the upper and the lower sides of the, that washer pretty uh thoroughly so those that's rebar and when I was coyote trapping with rebar I would use two stakes and I'd always use those butterfly uh, uh, stake um, ends where you got kind of a it's a double stake swivel so it attaches with a J hook to the end of your chain on your trap and it's got two holes one on one on either side and you pound one in one direction and the other in the other direction so they're they're pounded in kind of at 30 degree angles across from each other so either way that animal is pulling he's not uh, he's not pulling the stake directly out of the ground he's always pulling against one of them those are very effective We've never had anything come close to pulling out of them the trouble with rebar is it's a lot of weight and it's a lot of work and you haul rebar around for long enough and and uh, for guys that do a lot of this you know it probably can get pretty rough on a guy and wear out wear you out a little bit especially when you got to walk some distance from the truck to the the site that you're setting traps you got to carry that around your vehicle all the time you bring it back home and find a place to store all those rebar stakes and so it, it can be kind of a pain in the butt. Um, I remember a, a ad in a trapping magazine says, you still packing rebar? 
that ad's probably still out there somewhere. It was just the funniest thing. You're still packing rebar. And some of us are still packing rebar, but um, I've moved on. So the the revolutionary um, innovation that hit the trapping industry post-rebar was the earth anchor or the disposable stake. And those things are pretty much what everybody uses nowadays. That's uh, pretty well mainstream in in trapping. So the first thing that came along was the Berkshire disposable stake. I think that's the first one. I don't know that for sure. But as far as the, you know, I remember that when I was younger, that was coming out and, and it was pretty much the leader in, in the industry. And what that is, is a flat piece of steel that is sort of a rectangular shape with a spot to attach a cable to and uh, a couple of sharp points where it goes into the ground and so instead of a big long piece of rebar or metal rod you have one little piece of metal that it probably weighs an ounce or two and that thing has a cable attached to it and the cable is the whatever length you want to go and then the end of that cable is attached to your trap or your trap chain so the beauty of the Berkshire is it's light and it's quick so a lot of this became very popular in water trapping and of course you need to have a driver because there's no post there's no uh, nothing solid to drive into the ground when you got just a cable and so they come with a driver, you push that stake into the ground with the driver, it goes straight down, and the cable is anchored to the center of that, it's sort of like a fin, and as you pull up on the center, once it's down into the ground, when you pull up, it turns from being vertical, it turns horizontal, and it catches the ground, and it no longer is able to be pulled out, because that's all that surface area pushing against the dirt. So it goes straight in and then gets turned horizontal as it's coming, becoming pulled out. That's pretty much the way all of these earth anchors work. The Berkshire was very popular in the water. It was not popular in land and is not popular in land uh, or hard ground or anything because it's thin and it's very, very weak when it comes to taking a beating. This is not to be used in coyote trapping because it will get crumpled up and tore apart. If you need to pound into really hard ground, it's going to break. It's going to bend. So it's good water trapping, good for light duty use. The The next one that I, the one that I ended up using when I went from rebar stakes to start to use some of these earth anchors was called the Iowa Disposable Stake. Don't know who invented this. I bought a bunch of them from O'Gorman's. And all the Iowa Stake is, is a nice rugged piece of metal pipe round metal pipe that is cut at two angles it's uh, a couple inches long and it's got a nut welded to the to the center of it so just picture that piece of pipe sharpened to an angle on both sides couple inches long two three inches long with a nut welded in the center and you attach your cable to that nut you can adjust your length of cable and this had a driver that was uh, pretty much a round piece of steel that slid onto into that pipe 
and you pound the top of that with uh, with your hammer and you get it down as deep as you want it then you pull up and it does the same thing it turns horizontal catches the earth and doesn't go anywhere there are several others that are very similar there's the bullet point disposable stake the duckbill earth anchor the super stakes the only difference like the bullet point uh, instead of just having two open pieces of uh, two open ends sharpened ends on pipe one is actually they're kind of I think they're cast and one of them is like a bullet it's it's a solid point the one that faces down the the other innovation that I've seen with these is a couple of the designs have uh, you know the, the you attach the center with your cable but they have two attachment points they have one on one end and so you have and you have a cable that attaches to that as well so you use one of the one in the center you pull in that cable that's what your trap is going to get attached to that pulls it up turns a horizontal so you you're you're anchored but then that additional cable that's attached to the end of the stake when it's time to get up and go and move on you pull on that cable and it flips the stake back vertical so it comes out of the ground easier so that uh, that was popular for a while and uh, and it's another option uh, the thing with the disposable or the, the earth anchors they call them disposable for a reason some people leave them right in the ground sometimes you can use them from year to year it depends on your soil and how fast they will start the cable will start to rust and, and the stake will start to rust um, probably shouldn't take too many chances on that the some people just leave them in there let them rust out pound a new, another one in the next year some people will pull every one of them out um, and attempt to, to save them so so there are different ideas on that uh, they do cost a fair amount probably depends what you're trapping what your numbers are what you can afford to spend and what your time's worth uh, the the Iowa's and the bullet and those those type stakes they're they're pretty expensive they're like between 80 cents and a dollar a piece um, and now there's this new invention this new design called uh, the wolf fang so the wolf fang is going back to the Berkshire disposable stake that flat uh, rectangular shape stake and basically what the wolf fang is is it's that same type of earth anchor but it's at least two to three times the thickness it is rugged very very rugged and uh, in addition to uh, Wolfang um, product there or Wolfang brand uh, I think Freedom brand makes those there is uh, Osable from PCS Outdoors John Chagnon uh, Osable Fur Products makes one that's essentially the wolf thing. It's the same exact style, looks exactly the same, and really thick and rugged and works the same exact way. They both have their drivers uh, that are a different shape than than the other uh, disposable stake drivers. But anyway, those those are pretty much where we're at. Those are the main options for stakes and earth anchors, all the way back from wooden stakes to to the disposable earth anchors that we have today. And probably the majority of trappers are back, are up to using the the wolf fang type of of stake. 
So those are probably the way to go until maybe someone will invent something new we'll, and come along and, and uh, revolutionize things again. So those are stakes. Now let's talk a little bit about drags. So first off, I want to talk about why you would use drags at all and the difference between drags and stakes and what the advantages might be. Because a lot of people just think, well, I, I want to... I thought initially I, I don't want to drag, I want to stake the trap down and have the animal there when I get there and not have to worry about it. And I'm checking traps in the dark anyway and there's hunters around and and so I'm getting, trying to get ahead of the hunters and, and uh, I don't want to, I got to go to work and I don't have to, I don't want to have to chase an animal around, I don't have a dog to help me find an animal that runs off on a drag. So all that stuff. But a lot of people use drags. Drags are very popular for good reason. So anyway, unfortunately for me, uh, drags are not legal in the part of the state where I trap. It's something to do very complicated regulations that have to do with Canada lynx and the Endangered Species Act. That uh, I think episodes 6 and 7 of the podcast, if you want to get a background on endangered species lynx in Maine, that is a really good overview and background of the history and where we're at today. But needless to say, I can't use them. So uh, John Chagnon from PCS Outdoors sent me a bunch of products a while back to uh, to try, and these he has these Osable rotating trap drags, and they're a really cool product. I liked how they looked, but I could not try them on the trap line because they weren't legal to use in my area. So basically, what I thought is, well, why not make this something fun for people that read trapping today? So I had a contest and. I what I did was just put up a post and said um, I'm gonna give away this dozen dozen trap drags from PCS Outdoors, but in order to be entered in the contest, I would like for you to leave a comment on why you use trap drags. So that was pretty cool. I got a whole pile of comments from that post, and it was pretty exciting uh, to see all the different perspectives and I put those comments together and then I actually wrote a blog post on why I use trap drags so I think I'll just read that to you here and it'll give you a little overview on why I use drags securing an animal caught in your trap is one of the most critical elements of successful trapping and there are three basic ways to do it you can attach the trap chain to a solid object like a tree or a post stake it down or use a drag Drags are an important tool on the trap line. Their proper use is an art that can provide a great deal of benefit to the trapper and the animal being pursued. At its most basic level, a trap drag is an object, usually in the shape of a grapple or hook, that's not fastened to anything but the trap chain and allows the animal to leave the area and drag it along away from the trap bed. After being caught in a foothold trap, an animal will attempt to get a getaway, usually towards some brush or other cover where it seeks safety. Drags are designed to become easily entangled in brush and allow the animal to be secured in a vegetated area away from the trap bed, but not too far to avoid being discovered by the trapper. So what's the advantage of using trap drags? Here are a few things from readers of Trapping Today that, that commented. Drags leave the set area undisturbed. So instead of tearing up the set area and making a catch circle that's common in, when you have the the trap staked down and the animals running around in a circle trying to get out. 
The animal leaves the catch area, doesn't disturb the ground or urinate there. This means the natural set is much easier to remake for another catch. Now some people like the catch circle because it can be a good attractor, um, but if you don't want that, a drag can work well. Drags hide the target animal in brush or trees instead of leaving it out in the open where the trap set was. Because usually, especially for coyotes and fox, you're setting out in the open and then uh, uh, because they're more likely to work a set in the open. But then when they're caught, they go away and they hide in the brush and trees. So you kind of have the best of both worlds. Though animals uh, like coyote and fox are much easier to trap in open areas, catching and holding them there can often be a disadvantage. The drag allows the animal to hide from aerial predators like birds, hunters, and trap and fur thieves. They're also less likely to be seen by other passersby, including some folks who may misunderstand or dislike trapping and might be disturbed by seeing a wild animal caught. So that's a good way to get that animal in the woods. Drags reduce stress in many cases. When an animal is able to hide from predators and man, it tends to be more calm and less stressed. And stress is something that should be avoided whenever possible. Drags prevent pullout. On a long chain caught up in brush that has spring and give to it, an animal has very little leverage or ability to apply force to get out of the trap. This allows trappers to hold animals that may have otherwise pulled out. On the flip side, some might argue getting the trap chain tangled around brush and trees can cause other issues. Uh, but that, that I haven't really seen a lot of evidence of that, but it can happen. Drags are quick and relatively easy to set up. Other than digging a deeper trap bed for fox and coyote sets, it's pretty simple to make a drag set. Uh, bury or set the drag in place and you're done. No pounding on stakes and working them out of the ground at the end of the season. So some people say, well, I save my shoulders by using drags. I don't have to pound and pound on those stakes and then yank and yank to get them out. So you just bury them. Sometimes you got to dig a bigger trap bed to get them in there. Uh, some cases, uh, a guy a guy said he traps on the river, on the riverbanks, and he's got a bunch of sand in the area, and he just goes in, and, and he'll make a set, and he'll just toss the drag in the bushes uh, right next to the trap, and uh, he doesn't have to bury it or anything. He says it works awesome, wicked quick. And finally, drags allow trappers to make sets in places that aren't possible to stake. And I remember this one time, man, I was so frustrated. All I had was was rebar stakes and I found a perfect spot to make a set wide open kind of like a park area along the logging road and a couple of skitter trails coming to it and just a bunch of sign there it was just ideal for a set and there was about five four or five inches of topsoil right on bedrock so I pounded and pounded and I tried about five six different places that I could not get a stake in and if I'd been able to use a drag, uh, I would have had a couple good sets there. So areas with shallow soils, lots of bedrock, heavy clay, or frozen ground, it can be impossible to drive a stake into the ground. Instead of passing by an opportunity to make a set, oftentimes using a drag can turn an impossible situation into a successful one. Drags may not be a great option for all trappers, but they certainly provide advantages in many situations. Where legal, you should give drags a try on your trap line. They're one of the many tools we can use to make ourselves better trappers. So that's why you use drags. Pretty cool, huh? Now, 
let's talk about the different drags that are out there. So the original drag, like I said, was the dude, the old mountain man that was anchoring to a big piece of a log or a tree. Uh, and, and that was a very effective drag in a lot of cases. But there are a lot of other drags uh, to use. The original drags that were made out of metal, there were a few different designs. Some were two-prong and some were three-prong. The one that hung on and is still being used today is the two-prong, pretty much. And basically, all that is is one piece of round stock steel that's bent into the shape of two U's. So, two, like, like uh, or two J's that are facing out away from each other and eat the end of each of those J's is uh, sharpened and they're angled uh, a little bit offset angles so that the thing is going to tend to dig into the ground as they're running away. These are not very common anymore. The, the few issues, they're very small drags, they're very light. Uh, there are a couple different sizes you can get but for the most part those drags are are not as common because unless you're in a really wooded area they're not incredibly effective well they're effective but an animal can go a long ways before they get hung up in certain places there's been uh, an innovation improvement to this original standard two-prong drag and I'll have to ask John sometime I don't know if he came up with this himself because I haven't seen it anywhere else but the Osable rotating trap drag and it's a pretty cool design it's two pieces Instead of this one piece of steel that's bent, uh, this is two different pieces of steel. And one is sort of like a shallow U shape uh, that's bent. There's a, it it kind of has, it's bent on two en on both ends, and each end is sharpened and offset like the, the standard drag. But the center piece that uh, is perpendicular to the bottom piece that has the two, the U's, the U shape, that uh, where the points are, that center piece that goes down instead of just being uh, tight attached, fastened tightly or welded to the other piece, that is um, driven through a hole in the center piece and then kind of stamped on the end, so or punched that uh, the steel is flattened so it can't pull out. But because it's in that hole, it's allowed. It allows the thing to spin freely. So if you can picture this, uh, and if you can't, just uh, Google Osable, A-U-S-A-B-L-E, trap drag. And you'll see this thing. And you have the, just picture like a long uh, steel rod, and on the end of it, there's this thing with two points on it that spins freely. And what happens is this thing is able to effectively spin it acts well number one it acts as an extra swivel uh, in addition to the swivels on your chain and your trap so that's pretty cool uh, but in addition to that it allows the the points to spin pretty quickly as the animals running away they spin like the prop on a motor like a propeller and they're much more likely to catch as they're spinning and catch into the ground or catch into brush so they're they're very effective. Now they're a small drag. They're they're actually pretty cheap too. They're they're very affordable, but they're they're best used in heavily wooded countries. So the eastern U.S. is probably the best place for them. You need to have a lot of brush and trees to to get for them to get tangled up in.
Um, but those are pretty much your two wood country drags. Uh, the Osable rotator and the, the standard two prong or, or even three prong. Now moving into open country, you get into some innovation with these big heavy duty drags. And uh, I believe that probably the greatest innovator in the drag space out on the Western Predator Trapping Arena, his name is Eddie Wimberly. And Eddie Wimberly was, and still, I believe still is, a government trapper, been doing it forever, and a really super experienced guy. And he designed this open, he called it the High Plains Plow. And it's this drag for open country that doesn't allow animals to get very far. It's really heavy, really rugged, very sharp points to it, and it just digs into the ground like a plow. So the, you know, when you drag in an open country, it, it can be tough for the animal to get hung up because there's only like a few tufts of grass and some sagebrush here and there. So you need something that's going to dig into the ground. Of course, the disadvantage is you're not hiding the animal as well necessarily as you would. Sometimes these drags like like that, uh, the the Wimberly one, uh, and a couple of the others that I'll mention. Uh, some of them, man, they're only animals and only go a few feet. It's like oh, I might as well just put a stake on. But they're very effective. <clears throat> they're also very heavy duty. They're they're rugged. They're expensive. Um. So a few of the brands, different brands, are pretty much all similar design. But J.C. Connor makes one called the Tracker, the Tracker series. Uh, very heavy duty for use in relatively open ground. The Freedom brand has a saber tooth drag. Uh, very similar, heavy duty steel stock. Lots of uh, welded angles to it. Heavy weight and very sharp points. Um, they, in addition to the saber tooth, they have the Freedom brand heavy duty drag. Um, Minnesota Trapline makes uh, uh, MB Trailblazer, Trailblazer Drag, very similar to the Freedom brand one, similar price. Um, and then another one I ran across because I am always on Cots Brothers website. <coughs> Cots Brothers have the, a welded rebar drag that they they make and sell there. So uh, those they're not as fancy, but uh, they are lower price, more affordable than most of the other heavy duty drags. So those are the different uh, drags, and that's kind of where we're at in drag innovation is we, we went from uh, a log to a uh, <clears throat> simple piece of steel to some swiveling to some really heavy-duty rugged stuff. So anyway, I hope that was a decent overview of the options that we have. Remember to consider all the different options when staking traps. Do the thing that's most suitable to your situation. Make sure it's legal and ethical and it's going to uh, <clears throat> result in, in the best overall outcome for both you as a trapper and the animal. And uh, there are just lots of options. you got any questions or you got any other things to add, feel free to contact me as always. jrodwood at gmail.com. That's J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys listening in. There are lots of people listening. The podcast is growing just a little bit every week. Uh, close to 300 of you listened uh, last uh, to last week's episode in the past seven days. So that is really exciting and, and neat that, uh, that so many people are catching on to the podcast. Share it with your friends. Get a copy of my book, Fur Profit. 
and I will catch you on the next episode. Have a great week.